It is a Friedman Friday, and we are about to get into it. I am so pleased to welcome into the space a nationally recognized award-winning trial attorney. She's been identified as a super lawyer by LA Magazine for four consecutive years. Uh, She is recognized as a racial justice scholar, equity consultant. She was formerly legal director of the Equal Justice Society, and she was a member of California's groundbreaking reparations task force. Welcome attorney Lisa Holder. Hello, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on and for participating in this conversation on every level. So you invested quite a bit of time in the task force. Reparations task force has delivered their final report, and I should say your final report. The recommendations are clear. I feel like this created incredible momentum, but I also feel like there's a lot of pushback right now. Where are you feeling we are in terms of the impact of your work on the task force? Well, you know, I'm I'm going to focus on the momentum. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you can't do this work without being extremely positive and, and, and forward-thinking. And the, the work of the task force cr- created tremendous momentum for repairing the harm of 250 years of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow, and decades of uh, systematic discrimination and post-civil rights apartheid when it relates to African-Americans. So although reparations is something that has actually, is a concept and a construct that has been around since the time of emancipation, the work of the, the recent work of the California Task Force has really mainstreamed the concept and brought it to the forefront of people's minds. So as I said, I focus on the, on the momentum because the work that the task force did and the work that California is doing has been catalytic um, for, uh, for this, uh, this construct, this concept of reparations. When the task force completed its report, some folks were trying to extend the life of that body to kind of educate people and push for some of these legislative and other solutions to be implemented, that did not happen. Is that why this uh, new body has been has been launched by some of the former task, fo- task force members, the Alliance for Reparations, Reconciliation, and Truth? Well, when the task force sunsetted, we were scheduled to sunset set in July 2023. We did sunset in July 2023. And we did everything that we were required to do, including delivering a monumental uh, report uh, with uh, over 115 recommendations to the California legislature of what the process of repairing the harm should look like in terms of systemic changes to all of the different sectors in healthcare, uh, criminal justice, uh, housing education, and finance, et cetera. 
So we we got the job done. We, we gave this 1,100-page report with, a hun- with 115 recommendations. That was the most important deliverable, and it is on the desk of all the California legislators right now. So the work got done. Now what we're doing as a cohort of the task force along with many uh, uh, highly respected, credible nonprofits in the state of California is we are now moving the ball forward on those recommendations. We have formed a coalition. It's called ART, A-R-R-T, which stands for Alliance for Reparations, Reconciliation, and Truth. And the coalition, the alliance, our task now is to compel the state of California to move forward with those 115 recommendations that represented a blueprint blueprint for for reparations in California. So what does that work look like? What form could it take? So the the form that the work is, is, is taking is that we are galvanizing folks on the ground in California. It really is a public education campaign. So we are educating the public about the work of the task force, about all of the, that entire study, which makes the case for reparations, and most importantly, about the 115 recommendations for what repairing the harm should look like um, in the state of California. So when I say that we are galvanizing the, the, the public, I mean, we are going around, we're speaking to associations, groups, uh, uh, schools, classes in all sectors. In addition to that, we are doing power building on the ground. We are working with nonprofits across the state of California to educate their constituents uh, and to educate communities about reparations and about the work of the task force and about those recommendations that are now sitting on the desks of the legislators. And so with this public education campaign, we are capitalizing on all that momentum that was built over the last two years of the task force process in order to now uh, mobilize and organize the public so that they can show the legislators that there is the political will to move reparations forward in California. It sounds like educating and also building that political will. I mean, I've seen the one poll that was widely reported on saying that most Californians don't support reparations for um, African-Americans for the harms of Jim Crow, enslavement, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, my initial reaction is, so what? It's a debt that's owed. It's not a popularity contest, but for legislators, it's always a popularity contest, right? Well, just just to um, just to just to just make a statement about just like sort of the the predicate statement that you made. You know, there are many polls out there, but the the one of the premier researchers in the state of California, which is the UCLA Bunset Center, which is respected all over the country, their polling which was conducted over the two-year task force process, actually showed quite the opposite, that most Californians do believe in reparations, particularly when it is about changing systems. 
you know, people recognize um, that our systems were, our systems are failing black people by design, right? And that is, that is why the systems of education, of housing, you know, finance and wealth building systems, all of those systems actually need to be repaired. And the study that was done by the Bund Center shows, establishes, that folks in California believe in reparations to the extent that is about repairing systems. Right. So I guess the sticking point for a lot of people is cash repair or any kind of payout. That, yeah. And that is the sticking point. So the, uh, you know, the, the, some, many of the studies and polling shows that, most African Americans believe in cash payments, but the majority uh, of Californians are not uh, fully behind cash payments, whereas they are fully behind uh, whatever amount of resources it takes to repair the system, our system so that they can actually uh, work for the benefit of all people, uh, especially uh, black people who have been left behind within our system. That's really interesting. When you do these educational sessions with schools or community groups, what are you hearing? Is it in alignment with that? Is it, are you seeing movement in how people think about reparations when you're talking with them? Because I know that a lot of people don't even understand really what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and that's why public education is so important to really just explain to people that reparations is is really a unifying concept. It is what we are missing in our democracy. Really, in order to have a multicultural, inclusive democracy, you have to repair the original sins that were done. You have to atone for those original sins, and you have to compensate and pay the debt owed. To the, to the people who were uh, oppressed. And until we do that, we cannot have a truly inclusive uh, multicultural democracy. And so we, we explain that to people. We show the, the folks that we are educating the 1,100-page report. We talk to them about the 115 recommendations we've made to repair the system. And, and I have to tell you, you know, I, in addition to be a civil, being a civil rights lawyer, I have taught in law schools and universities for years. When I speak to students in higher education about reparations, they come alive. It is truly a catalytic uh, construct and concept and sort of framework. Uh, people are just very, very excited about it, especially young people. It really energizes them. And I don't know if you do a lot of work with young people, but I have found, that found recently that, you know, this generation, Generation Y or whatever they're called, you know, there's a lot of malaise. There's, uh, people feel disaffected. They feel hopeless about the future. When I talk to them about reparations, the light goes on. And they mm. feel like this is what we need to, 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 to level the playing field so that we feel that we can go forward um, as the future of America. So it is a really unifying concept 
Um, and it really uh, is, you know, when you talk to people about it one-on-one, you see how um, electrifying it is. Talking with civil rights attorney Lisa Holder, you're welcome to get in the conversation, 800-920-1580. want to look at some of the legal obstacles and some surprising endorsements for reparations on this Freedman Friday when we come forward only on KBLA Talk 1580. She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. The conversation continues right now, right now, right now with now, Dominique DePrima on First Things First. First. Civil rights attorney Lisa Holder is my guest on this Freedman Friday. She served on the ACLU Board of Directors, currently vice president of the Board of Directors for the Child Care Law Center, and of course uh, has done a lot of work on this reparations task force. Now part of a, something called Alliance for Reparations, Reconciliation, and Truth, which is a coalition of different community-based organizations, former task force members, moving the ball on reparations. I'm looking at this list of endorsements that you guys have put together, which is a, you know, a list in progress. I think you have over 400 here. And I'm thinking about some conversations I had earlier in the week. One is that, uh, one scholar was on the show said Chinese people do not support reparations for black Americans. And I see several Chinese organizations, Chinese for American for affirmative action, Chinatown community development center, quite a few AAPI uh, umbrella organizations. Also some Latino organizations here um, to me or to some others, to me, it's not that surprising, but to many people, I think it would be. Uh, yeah, you know, but to many people, it would be because we're so used to that deceptive divide and conquer narrative, that master narrative that's been going around for the last 400 years to make sure that BIPOC communities don't form a collective. Um, but the fact is that when you look at the endorsements that for the, for the work of the task force and for the report itself, you see that all communities are uh, uh, coalescing around reparations. We have uh, over 550 endorsers, wow. um, and they are first for some of, from some of the major professional associations, from uh, community-based organizations all over the state of California, and more than 25% of those endorsements are from the AAPI community. So when people say that Asian Americans don't support reparations, again, that is disinformation. And in fact, the Japanese American community has been fully behind reparations because they understand uh, the necessity of repairing the harm, having been one of the first groups to receive reparations back in the 80s. And in the 80s, when uh, the 1988 Civil Rights Act was passed to repair the harm to Japanese-American communities, black people were fully behind that. And in return, Japanese-American people are standing with us. And again, I will repeat, 25% of the organizations endorsing this are from the AAPI community, including the Chinese-American community. 
we have the Latino community, we have the Native American community, and we have, um, uh, we have folks from all different sectors, including philanthropy. Some of the biggest philanthropic organizations in the country are wholly behind reparations. Our endorsers include the Irvine Foundation, the Weingart Foundation, uh, uh, TCE, you know, uh, and California Wellness. Uh, these are some of the most celebrated uh, philanthropic organizations in the country. We have Jewish organizations uh, that have endorsed the support and the work of the task force and reparations. Uh, many of the major universities and mo- most of the uh, the large California bar associations, like the like the LA Bar Association, so professional associations from many, many sectors as well have signed on. So, you know, there is a tremendous uh, collective support for repairing the harm to the black community. And anyone who tells you otherwise is just spreading disinformation. I mean, I see Korean history and cultural heritage preservation, La Raza Central Legal in San Francisco. I see, uh, I see, Jewish groups, as you mentioned, including some faith groups here, um, it's quite it's quite a comprehensive list. Are all of these folks that you guys approached and they were like, "Oh yes," or was there any conversation where you had to move an organization from "No, we don't support" to "Yes, we do"? But really, what we've done is we've just educated. Uh, Mm-hmm. different communities about the work of the task force, about um, the two years of research that we did to make the case for reparations and about, you know, the astonishing level of expertise that went into that report that established beyond the shadow of a doubt that the harm is continuing and must be repaired. And once we just showed them the report and talked to them about the due diligence that was done, they were all on board. So it really is just about educating uh, various communities about the facts. And once they know the facts, they see the truth, and they realize that they have to be a part of it. Our Lady of Victory, Missionary Sisters, or Shalom Jewish Community, Philippine American Bar Association, and on and on it goes. I think, I don't know if I want to open this can of worms, but I'll do it briefly here because we just have three minutes before news, traffic, and sports, and we'll continue on the other side. There is a perception in some circles uh, of the reparations movement that it is something that immigrants do not support or that immigrants undermine because they will be trying to get uh, reparations that are due to black Americans. Well, something that's really important to understand, it's really important to always have a historical perspective inform any discourse. And from a historical perspective, reparations has been an African diasporic movement. Uh, you know, it's, you know, some of the greatest 20th century reparationists like Marcus Garvey, like Marcus Garvey, uh, were immigrants. Um, that galvanized America and Black Americans around the concept of reparations. So it, 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 is, it is a diasporic movement. 
we have Caracom, which is the Caribbean group that's uh, that uh, that looks is looking for reparations. We have Ghana is one of the major nations that has been fighting uh, uh, vigorously for rep- reparations. Guyana, etc. And so there's a diasporic movement. It's not just an American movement. It is an international movement. And reparations is, is an international human rights concept. You know, um, the, so, so we have to connect with that broader uh, movement in order to be effective uh, within our uh, American U.S. ecosystem. Yeah, we've got news, traffic, and sports right here. Um, we can go a little deeper into that. And I want to talk to you about the legal legal basis for reparations. I know that there's a lot of debate, conversation about that, including whether a federal um, a federal initiative is hindered by local, city, county, or state uh, initiatives, or whether it's helped by that and how those interact. What does the private sector owe? What does institutional, um, what role does institutional wealth play in this, whether it be educational institutions or banks? Uh, All of that is on the table on a Friedman Friday, KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA Talk 1580 wishes you a Christmas season that is merry and bright. bright. Happy holidays. Santa baby. Just slip a sable under the tree for me. We're not for everybody, but we're for everybody. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. And we are talking with civil rights attorney Lisa Holder. She was a member of the California Reparations Task Force and is part of something called the Alliance for Reparations, Reconciliation, and Truth. I have to say it is really encouraging to know that so many power players are coming together to follow up on the work of the task force. The, to me, the biggest fear is that you guys would do all this work and then it'll just sit there. Um, legislators not being motivated to follow through on some of the laws and policies that you've recommended. Um, folks being afraid and backing off of the monetary piece because of their own electoral ambitions, et cetera, et cetera. It sounds like you guys are not letting this go at all. And I love that. Oh yeah. Thank you so much um, for that observation and for that encouragement. Yeah. We, 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 we recognize as a task force that, you know, there was really just tremendous momentum and that, you know, when we went all over the state doing these hearings there was there was such a, a need for healing. We we saw people making such passionate statements about their experience of discrimination um, and their connection to their enslaved ancestry. That we're like, we can't let this go. You know, this is an original sin that must be uh, that you know we must make amends for it in this country, and we must uh, pay people the debt that's owed. Um, and so we just we 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 are completely committed uh, as a task force, and and the community uh, is committed, um, uh, multicultural. You know, as we discussed, 
communities from all walks of life, uh, multicultural uh, communities are committed to this work. Um, and that is why we have come together now uh, under this, this ban um, for reparations, reconciliation, and truth. And it is especially necessary in this moment to push back against the strains of authoritarianism and fascism and anti-truth um, that we're seeing in this country. We talked about this whole idea of reparations being a global humanitarian concept, and you mentioned Ghana and CARICOM. What I hear from some folks in the movement is that those countries maybe owe, especially African nations, may owe African Americans reparations if they participated in our enslavement. And also there's this fear that there's a finite about a, amount of resources. So if Africans and Caribbean folks are included, it would mean less for black Americans when it comes to reparations coming out of this country. Uh, just a couple of responses. Um, you know, I, I would say one of the most devastating impacts of colonialism and slavery and decades of discrimination uh, is this is this con the scarcity mindset, right? That frankly is antithetical from the the abundance mindset that that people of Africa actually originally had. <laughs> um, you know, when when they when they removed us from our home, uh, from our history, from our culture. They removed us from that abundance mindset as well, right? Uh, the, the mindset that embraced generosity, hope, uh, and, the, and the idea of abundance. And we were put into this horrific situation where there was so much scarcity um, and we were being controlled by a, a sort of a Eurocentric mindset, which is very much about scarcity. And it completely erased that sort of original uh, abundance mindset. So when I when I hear this scarcity mindset, it, it really makes me think of how can you dismantle the master's house using the master's tools. Um, but but beyond that, you know, there we we have to remember that, for instance, California is the fifth largest economy in the world. The United States is the most wealthy country in the world. And although they have made black folks and many people of color believe that we have to fight amongst ourselves and just wait for the crumbs, there's actually an, an entire pie. <laughs> And a, and, and, a, and a large amount of that pie belongs to us because of the debt owed to us um, because of all the harm that colonialism and post-colonialism um, inflicted. And so we need to move away from this scarcity mindset. We need to move away from this, um, this sort of ad hoc, piecemeal, anti-immigrant anti mindset and really in, in, embrace all people who have experienced this harm of slavery. And this was a this was a global atrocity. It was 
global carnage on black bodies. And so all, all uh, black people need to be repaired. Um, and the other thing that is critical to understand is that, you know, the experience of, of all black people in this country has been one of, has been one that has been damaging and has been oppressive, an oppressive experience. So, um, you know, for instance, black, black women, um, we are black women are in within our healthcare system are an endangered are an endangered species. I mean, literally, black women are four times more likely to die during childbirth um, or be from a childbirth related illness. Black women are twice as likely to die from cancer. Uh, newborn babies of black women are four times more likely to die if they have uh, if they're delivered by a white doctor. I mean. These are abominable, abominable statistics, and they're about blackness. They tell us the story of anti-blackness. And when you are black in this country, regardless of when you got here, you are catching hell. And you are experiencing the legacy of discrimination and slavery and the vestiges of slavery. So all black people are owed a debt. All black people need to be healed. And, in, and if we are going to focus on changing systems and make sure that these systems that were designed to damage black people are now uh, going to be retooled so that they are fair to black people, we have to make sure that those systems are fair to all black people. We can't just say that um, only uh, black women uh, in, in hospitals who are descendants of enslaved people uh, deserve equal care. No, all black women deserve equal care in our health system. All black children in our education system uh, deserve to be educated. And so if we're going to repair the harm, let's repair the harm. Let's move away from the scarcity mindset, which is a Eurocentric concept, and embrace the abundance mindset, which is the original mindset of, of, of the African people. So, um, so I am very much uh, about healing universally and about ending anti-black animus, because that is the only way forward. Um, it, for, you know, and for purposes of, of cash payments, which again is just one aspect of reparations, it's, we're really about systemic repair. But for purposes of cash payments, the task force decided that cash payments, it's most appropriate that they go to descendants of U.S. enslaved people. Um, that is one way that we have thread, that we thread the needle to make sure that the descendants of U.S. Uh, born enslaved people are getting extra recognition for the unique harm that that group faced. That's interesting because... One of the conversations has been, well, the California task force embraced a lineage model and you're pointing out that this is applicable to cash payments because obviously if you change laws regarding our imprisonment or other ways that harm appears, that's going to benefit all black people. So that's not necessarily using that lineage lens. But 
I think the decision by the California task force to use that standard has um, really set it, set a bar, I guess. And maybe um, a lot of people believe that this is the only way that it can pass legal muster. Uh, well, I, I don't know that we have set a bar nationally. The, the, the decisions that we made for state of California were specific to California and the experience mm -hmm. of discrimination in the state of California. Um, the, you know, the legal question uh, is, 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 is a separate question. Uh, you know, I've been a constitutional scholar and a civil rights lawyer for over 20 years. I have taught uh, about constitutional policing at UCLA Law. So I actually do have a background in the law. Um, and I actually uh, have a background specifically in in doing analysis around equal protection and the 14th Amendment and our constitutional laws as they relate to uh, racial discrimination. And what I can say is that regardless of how you structure reparations, as long as you do a thorough vetting you do a thorough analysis, you bring in an expert lens, and you collect evidence from the community, you can meet the, uh, the constitutional requirement um, uh, uh, of equal protection. You know, it's really about your methodology and how sophisticated your methodology is and the level of due diligence um, and consistency uh, and and frankly, discipline that you use when you study reparations that will determine whether or not you can pass legal muster. It's not really whether it's lineage-based or, uh, or anti-Blackness-based. Hmm. Talking with the term it's about lineage or just harm, it really is about the level of due diligence that you use in putting your study together. Fascinating. Talking with attorney Lisa Holder, and we'll continue the conversation when we come forward on this Freedman Friday, KBLA Talk 1580. More of First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where everybody is somebody and nobody is a stranger. You belong here. She is a civil rights attorney. She is formerly a member of the Reparations Task Force uh, for the state of California, a law professor. Lisa Holder is my guest. And so much to cover. Really appreciate you spending the hour with us. I think part of the fear around, is it lineage or not lineage? Do we have to call ourselves Negroes or freedmen or Ados or Black Americans? Is because of the Supreme Court's uh, moves on affirmative action and what appears to be the striking down of anything meant to really repair um, the harms of racism and discrimination in this country. Yeah, and as I explained before, when we're talking about the constitutional hurdles, 
when we're talking about the Supreme Court, when we're talking about the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause and the standards that are set forth for what it takes to have race-conscious programming, what those standards, what they really are measuring is um, the level of due diligence in your methodology that you use when you are bringing a race-conscious program. So if you can prove that the state has a compelling interest in bringing a race-conscious program, then that's the, that's the standard. It's not, the standard is not whether it's lineage-based or whether it's harm-based. It's can you meet this hurdle to show that it is a compelling state interest and that the program that you are bringing is narrowly tailored so that it is meeting that need. That is the constitutional standard that has to be met. And when you translate that into layman's language, what that means is that if you are going to make the case for reparations and bring reparations legislation, then you got to do your homework. And that is why we wrote this 1,100-page report that is why we spoke to over 100 scholars who spoke to us about racism and discrimination and the vestiges of slavery in every sector, in the housing sector, in the education sector, in the finance sector, in the real estate sector, in the lending sector, uh, in, in, in every single sector. We, we got an expert to talk to us about what the legacy of slavery has done to that sector of our society and how that continues to harm black folks. What we also did is we did listening sessions with thousands of Californians across the state of California. And we also, in each of our 30 hearings, we had two hours of public comment where we got anecdotal evidence from hundreds of black, thousands of black Californians during those listening sessions. And that is the content that is embodied and embedded in this report. And it is, a, it is a, enough to meet the constitutional standards to show that there is a compelling state interest to repair the harm to black people in California and that the way that we are doing reparations in California is specifically tailored to repair that harm. That's the constitutional standard. That is what has to be met. And the reparations task force did the work to meet that standard. Whether or not it's lineage or harm-based, from my perspective, as someone who has been litigating cases under the Equal Protection for 20 years, that's irrelevant. What matters is the methodology we use the, the evidence that we collected, and the due diligence. That's how we are going to make the case for reparations if it becomes a litigation or legal issue. Attorney Holder, according to what you just said, it sounds like a federal study is imperative. Well, here's the thing. You know, you know, we, we know that uh, Representative John Conyers back in 1989 introduced H.R. 40, and for nearly 50 years, the federal government has been trying to get H.R. 40 passed, which would be 
the uh, reparations convening at the federal level to make the case for reparations at the federal level. It hasn't gotten passed, right? It hasn't even made it to the floor even in these 50 years, even though it comes up every single year. But what we have done in California is we have created that study that H.R. 40 was trying to create. We didn't do a little 15, 60-page study. We didn't talk to five, 10 people. No, we, did, we did a two-year study. We, did, we, we produced an 1,100-page uh, tome that, that, that explains the history, uh, that explains the, the, the social science, that explains the, and, and establishes the continuing harm, and then that lays out very, very specific measures that need to be taken to address each aspect of that continuing harm. So we did what HR 40 at the federal level was designed to do. And I submit to you that when the federal government finally does uh, get it together to pass H.R. Uh, 40 or some things, something akin to H.R. 40, they already have the study. California did that study. Ooh. Just have a couple minutes left here, actually about a minute, um, and I want to tell encourage folks to go to alliance4.org, alliance4.org, sign up for updates. What do we need to know that folks are missing that I know there's a lot, but most urgently about reparations? Uh, there's, you know, first, what's really important, as I said, is educating the public so they understand what reparations is. And so they understand uh, how to uh, address and provide rejoinders to the, to the sort of standard arguments against reparations. You're going to hear, it's too late. It's too expensive. What about other groups who have also been harmed? Uh, it's too divisive. What you need to know is there's very simple answers to that. When people say it's too late, the response is that, you know, from an international human rights perspective, which is the foundation for reparations, there is no statute of, limit of limitations on genocide. So it's not too late. It's never too late. Uh, the harm was so great that it is never too late. When they say it's too expensive, uh, the, uh, the economists who have studied this have established that what, what, it, what is the most expensive is the harm, the continuing harm of discrimination. So uh, one economist, Dana Peterson, who uh, is, is the economist for Citibank, did a study on anti-black animus, and the study showed that for the last tw the, for the last 20 years, the cost of discrimination and anti-black animus has amounted to about 14 trillion dollars. 14 trillion dollars uh, since the, the since the, since the millennia. So, it when when people say reparations is too expensive, no, it is too expensive not to do reparations. Because when we continue to discriminate people, we actually are, are, that causes us to lose resources mm, in very, capacity and potential. It's very well said. Um, I appreciate your spending the hour with us. 
And I, I encourage everyone to go to alliance4.org and sign up for those updates. Attorney Lisa Holder, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been, this has been uh, very elucidating. Thank you.